Now let's go ahead and make our way in the Bible to Revelation chapter 19. And we have finally come to that time that I think all of us have been waiting for with great anticipation. That is the return of Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21 this evening. Let's take a moment to read our text and then we'll look at it more closely. Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name, and it is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The return of Jesus Christ is one of the most anticipated events in Christian doctrine. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, when we find passages that refer to the coming of the Messiah, we find in Old and New Testament alike that there is a first and second coming. It was confusing to the religious leaders at the time of Jesus when they compared passages of the Old Testament one beside another, and they saw a suffering servant in one passage described and a victorious king in a second passage described, and they didn't know how to reconcile the two. There were those rabbis who believed that there were going to be two messiahs not fully understanding that what was going to occur was going to be two comings, a first and a second. In Jesus' first coming, he came as the suffering servant. In his second coming, he will come back as a victorious king. It is these two comings that I believe that we should contrast with one another to truly put them in their proper perspective. But I want all of us to understand that the physical return of Jesus Christ is a doctrine that we cannot compromise over. Any Christian who would deny a physical return of Jesus Christ truly must not understand eschatology. There must be a physical return of Jesus Christ to the earth. A second coming, as we have deemed it. There are four reasons for that. Theologically, the reasons are, number one, that there must be the promises, the number of promises. There's a numerous number of promises that have been made concerning His second coming, Old and New Testament. The Word of God must be fulfilled perfectly. Number two, Christ will return to judge the nations for their unbelief. A time of judgment, a time of accountability, and a time of reconciliation. Thirdly, Christ will return to remove Satan from his earthly dominion. What Adam and Eve negated at the fall, 
Christ atoned for at his first coming and will repossess at his second coming. Full dominion over this world. Fourthly, Christ must return physically to return to establish his kingdom on the earth. Uh, One of the several promises made that Jesus Christ would return physically to establish his kingdom on the earth. I believe that it's unnegotiable to even consider that Jesus Christ is not physically returning to this earth. The second coming is a doctrine that is, that is necessity, by necessity, a Christian needs to hold to. It is clearly articulated in the Word of God. It is this return that we read of this evening. It is this return that we have waited for with great anticipation as we have been reading through the book of Revelation. This is the highlight. This is it. This is the climax of everything that we've been looking at. And last week in the first 10 verses of Revelation 19, we saw the incredible celebration where hallelujah was just perfectly placed in so many different ways before the second coming of Christ, where the world celebrated, where heaven celebrated, when those martyred celebrated, knowing that the return of Christ was imminent. I believe that the first and second coming of Jesus Christ must be compared. John goes to great detail to describe the rider on the white horse. He never calls him Jesus by name, but he uses very descriptive, very um, profound words of illustration to describe the one on the white horse. And I think it's amazing when you look at the contrast between the first coming and the second. So many of us, I think, have a picture that lingers with us of Jesus Christ that has been established by the gospel accounts. We think of Jesus as a helpless infant born in a manger, which he was. We think of Jesus as that infant that on the eighth day was circumcised, and he was. We think of him as the young boy teaching in the temple, confounding the wisdom of those in the temple, them not understanding who this young man is as he was teaching the things of God. We think of him as a carpenter from Nazareth, never traveling 100 miles farther than his hometown. We think of him being baptized by John and him proclaiming that all righteousness must be fulfilled and John then pointing to Jesus and asking the disciples of John to now go and follow Jesus where he is first called the Lamb of God. We think of his three years of ministry on this earth where he had compassion to sinners and profoundly rebuked the religious elite, the ones who garnished themselves in their own self-righteousness rather than looking for the righteousness that only Christ could give them. We remember him walking, or I should say riding in on a donkey as people cried out hallelujah and threw palm branches before him. He later was betrayed and we remember him as the subject of the betrayal, betrayed by a kiss by one of his followers, Judas, and then arrested. We remember his trial and the torture that followed afterwards. We remember 
him being brought before Pilate and Pilate asking him the question, are you a king? Jesus said very humbly, I am. This is who I am. You have said rightly. He was then brought before the people. The people rejected him and cried out, Barabbas. We remember then him carrying his cross down the Via Della Rosa there in Jerusalem and taking it out to Golgotha, Calvary, where he then was crucified. And I believe that all of us have a rendition of Jesus in our mind looking like that. In August, when my family and I went to the Art Institute of Chicago to view the works that were uh, on display there, almost every picture of Jesus Christ fell into one of these categories. The way we remember Jesus in His earthly time here with us. But He rose again. And He ascended into heaven. And at that ascension, He promised His return. I want you to take the image that you have of Christ that we have displayed from the historical accounts of the Gospels and compare it to what John sees returning. Radically different. The suffering servant is no longer suffering. For the reigning king is going to return. The victorious king is going to return. And I want us to consider Christ in that regard also certainly remembering all that He did for us, that we would never grow prideful, we would never be self-righteous, that we would never abandon or think that we can abandon Him in any way. Let us remember the sufferings of Christ. But at those times that we feel discouraged, or maybe downtrodden by the world, or maybe belittled, or we feel as if we are in isolation as a minority of one, let us now think of him also as the risen king, as we found now depicted for us here in his return. John is looking at him in this vision on the island of Patmos. The clouds have opened, the sky has opened, and one on the white horse is now physically returning to earth. And let us appreciate the description in which he gives us of the writer of the white horse. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Most of the English translations at that point have an exclamation point. There's enthusiasm, there's rejoicing, there is a relief that is found here, there's a jubilation that is found here, there's awe that is found here. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. The first description we have of him is that Jesus Christ is not returning to this world as he rode into Jerusalem. Coming in on a donkey was significant. It meant a king coming to another city in the aspect of peace. If a king were to ride up to a city that was not one under his reign, on a white horse, it would, re- it would mean to that city that that king has come to conquer, to overthrow. So the peaceful suffering servant that came in on the donkey is now returning to the world on the white horse. 
the imagery is changing. It is no longer a suffering servant, but is a victorious king in which we are looking at. The very first thing John says about him is that he is faithful and true. And it's regarding the fact that Jesus said he was going to return and is returning. Faithful. True. If Jesus says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. If Jesus makes us a promise, he is going to fulfill it. That's what he's saying here. This is what the disciples waited for in great anticipation. And you find it in the writings of Peter, Paul, and John, and Ringo. No. I just wanted to see if everybody was listening. It just kind of felt like I was going to go into the Beatles there. I got that from Joe. But you see it in every one of their writings. Jude, James, there's this anticipation that the Lord could return at any moment. And now it's occurring. This is what John has waited for. He is faithful and true. He is keeping his promise. He is returning. He judges and makes war. This time, it will not be him on trial. It will not be him brought before Pilate, brought before the people, brought before Herod, brought before the Sanhedrin and the, and the Pharisees. It's not going to be him on trial. It's going to be the world on trial. And he is the great judge. And he is going to come and decisively deal with those who have rejected him. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Eyes like a flame of fire. Most scholars believe that it is referring to the fact that Jesus will see all things and bring those things that are are imperfect before him in judgment, meaning that he will be able to ultimately discern. There's nothing that's going to be hidden from him. All things will be open and naked before him, and those things that will require judgment will be judged. Nothing will be hidden from him. On his head, there's this phrase, many diadems. And this refers to the fact that he is completely sovereign. There is no one over him in the way of authority other than God the Father, which he is the second person of. He is one and the same with God the Father. He is perfectly sovereign. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate when Pilate talked about his authority over Jesus. Jesus said, you would not have authority over me unless my Father had given it to you, right? Now he comes back. There's no authority over him. The Father is over him. That's all. He is coming back in His glory. Complete, sovereign power. We are indicated a name here that no one knows but Himself. So I don't find it worth speculating on what that name is, but He carries a name. There are many who may feel that it's the term Yahweh, something of that nature, which was so profound that no one was willing to speak it or write it. But we don't know what this name occurs. We know that there later is described a name on his thigh, but that's given to us. And we don't know what that is. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is where you find John's writing here in Revelation, one of many places. 
Revelation is so different than the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in its content that sometimes it's harder to see that it was the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. But only John used this term of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And that was in John 1, 1 through 5. If you remember, he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I would say so, wouldn't you? By the description of the return of Jesus here at this moment. But he's also clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. This blood is the blood of his enemies. And it goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, to a passage of scripture which is called the Oracle of Vengeance. The oracle of vengeance is found in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, and I'll read it to you. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments of, from Broaz? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the people. No one was with me. I trotted them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood was spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The enemies of the Lord are now dealt with, and the blood splatter is now found on the robe of our returning victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This is where you and I come into the picture. I believe that those following Christ at this moment, returning with him on white horses, are you and I. Those who have been saved by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Along with the angelic hosts. This is going to be something spectacular to say the least. But again, promised through Scripture. We are arrayed, and notice in this, fine linen, white and pure. Again, contrasting us to those who had given their allegiance to the beast. Those who had fallen. And those who had sinned and rebelled thoroughly against God. And now are suffering in darkness and separation those who drank from the cup of the one in scarlet and so forth. But you and I, you and I returning with Christ in these fine linen are able to do so because we are adorned with the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. When Paul talks about taking off the old nature and putting on the new, it is a precursor to this finality. For all eternity, we will enjoy that righteous standing that God has provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ. But day by day as we walk here on this earth, though we are righteous positionally before God in Christ, practically we must make an effort to walk in that righteousness and not to sin. But when we return, that'll all be behind us. What a glorious thought. Listen to Revelation seventeen fourteen. And they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of the lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. Jude also spoke of this moment when he wrote in Jude 14 and 15, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness they, that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. So now He is returning. We are returning with Him with a host of angelic angels and it's a glorious thing. Verse 15. From His mouth comes a sharp sword which is to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. The sharp sword is mentioned five times in Revelation, proceeding from the mouth of Jesus Christ, starting in verses chapter 116, 2, 12 and 16, and here in 1915 and also in 1921, the sword coming from his mouth. We know that the Word of God is described as a sharp, two-edged sword. It is by the Word of God that the world will be held accounted. It will be judged according to the Word of God, specifically. The enemies of God will not be defeated through physical means, but simply by a a spoken word, the same one who spoke all things into creation is the same one who will speak at one moment and bring all things into judgment. Pretty fantastic. It goes on to say that he will rule with a rod of iron, which in an Old Testament capacity always meant a total displacement of a government. Here it would be the total displacement of a world government. It's not going to rise again. A world system is not going to rise again. For Jesus Christ is establishing His kingdom physically on the earth and that kingdom will remain until the new heavens and the new earth is created and so forth. No more of going back to the old. This is what the psalmist looked forward to in Psalm 2, 1-9 when he wrote, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in desertion. Then He will speak to them in His wrath 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the father speaking to the son. Ask of me and I will make a nation, the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod and, uh, of iron and dash them to pieces like potter's vessels. This is what the psalmists look forward to and this is what's going to recur at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Also, Isaiah made mention of this. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch of, from the roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the Spirit of, I'm sorry, and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity of the meek on the earth. He shall strike the, ro- the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Once again in 15 we're reminded of the winepress Speaking of this earth, a term that would have been very familiar to all of those reading at that time, a process of which grapes are harvested and then brought to the wine press and of course then um, squished, if I may, to make wine. And Joel spoke of this. Joel three twelve through 14. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So you see all of the Old and New Testament coming to fruition, those promises made, those prophecies given in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Certainly up to this point, we can already agree that the illustration, the the example that we are given, the picture that we are being drawn is much different than that of the suffering servant that we remember that are historically recorded for us in the Gospels. But this is the same Lord and Savior that we embrace every single day. It is imperative that we allow ourselves to see Him as this victorious King and remember that He is no longer subjected to the suffering in which He once allowed Himself to be subjected to. I think this changes everything. I know it does for me. Because when I am up against opposition or resistance... If I remember the suffering servant, I remember, yes, Christ endured and he persevered and he went through it. But if I remember the victorious king, he's on the throne. He is in control. He is over sovereign over everything. He's going to see me through it one way or another. The war is finished. We have won. It's just a battle each and every day. And that's really what I want to grasp from this. If this wasn't enough, we come to verse 16. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It is interesting to me that in history, the Roman Greco culture, after a while, if you notice, if you know history, you'll understand that there was a transition between the empires of the Romans and the Greeks. The Greeks preceded the Romans. Of course, under Alexander the, Alexander the Great, the Greeks conquered a large portion of the known world. And the Greek influence went throughout all of those conquered areas. Rome came in afterwards. In fact, at that time, Rome was, uh, Greek was still being spoken as a language because it had been so um, well uh, included. Uh, it had been so well uh, involved in the Greek culture. It had been assimilated into the Greek culture. That's the word I'm really looking for. And there was a transition. The Greeks had their gods. The Romans had their gods. After a while, because of the plethora of pagan gods and the statues that were made to the pagan gods, often the pagan gods looked so similar that if there wasn't some kind of identifying mark, uh, mark on them, you wouldn't know what god is represented by that statue. So after a while, especially as the Greek gods started to fade off the scene, what they actually did is on the thigh of that god, they would write the name of that god. For example, I have a picture of one that it says on the side of the thigh of Zeus, it says, to Zeus, king of the gods, to allow people to remember that that statue was Zeus. Now think about that imagery for all of them at that time who are reading this, thinking of seeing their risen Savior and riding on the white horse on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no doubt of who he is. Superior to all. What imagery? He isn't going to be someone forgotten. He's one who's going to be eternally remembered. I think that's fascinating. But think of the term. Think of the moment that Jesus was once labeled King of the Jews as a sign was hung over his cross. And in three different languages it said King of the Jews. And how the religious leaders at that time were so opposed to it and and they were offended by it greatly because they wanted it removed. And now written on the thigh of our Savior is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. How it is written, what it is written upon, we don't know, but it just says the thigh of our Lord is written in this way. And this is the way John describes him, not as the suffering servant, but as the victorious king, the one who has returned. And when he returns, he begins to deal with the things that confront him. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all the men both free and slave 
both great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. With it the false prophet who was in its presence and had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The Bible in Old and New Testament alike appears to to indicate that Jesus Christ will return as the military forces of the ruling world empire and those who oppose it are gathered in a single location that we have spoke about earlier called the Valley of Megiddo. This congregation of these military forces has been known as the Battle of Armageddon, which of first appears to be nations that come against the forces of this one world empire composed of ten nations. And as they are beginning to battle, at a moment the skies peel open, the return of Jesus Christ, and instead of battling one another, they turn their attentions onto the returning Lord himself. It appears that's what this is indicating here. And Christ deals with those who turn their attention to him, not in spectacular military revolt, angels doing hand-to-hand combat with those on the earth, but with the simple word of his mouth. Not only that, the beast, the Antichrist, is dealt with, and the false prophet is dealt with, And we have it very clearly indicated that they, as alive, are thrown in to the lake of burning sulfur that burns continuously. The lake of fire. To be tormented, as we will find out later in chapter 20, for all eternity. And by the sword that came out of his mouth, those who were sitting on, who was sitting on the horse, he judged all who were opposed to him. He deals with them all. At the beginning of chapter 20, we will see that he deals specifically with Satan also. But notice that you and I, enjoying the, the marriage supper of the Lamb together with the Lord in chapter 18, I'm sorry, in chapter 19, earlier on in this chapter, pardon me, And that there's this other great supper of God that the birds of the air are enjoying as they actually devour the carcasses of those who are left after the judgment. This is the point where many believe that that indication that the blood splatter went as high as the bridle of the horses. And if it wasn't for the Lord's return, no flesh would stand a horrific account of judgment as God treads the winepress in his wrath. It is interesting that both Matthew and Luke, Jesus told us beforehand 
that the birds were going to have this opportunity to gorge themselves on the flesh that remains. Notice how many times the word flesh is used there to indicate that these are individuals that are in a state of rebellion against God. The flesh is always used in that type of imagery throughout the New Testament. The old nature, the flesh. Notice how many times it is used here. Think of Jesus speaking in Matthew when he said this in Matthew 24, 26 through 28. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. And verse 28. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Luke says something similar in Luke 17, 37. And they say to him, Where, Lord? Meaning, where can we find you? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Twice. He indicates that this would be a sign after his return that the corpse would be consumed by the vultures above. It is interesting to me that, again, we must notice that it is the word of God that proceeds from his mouth that judges, condemns, and executes judgment. It is interesting to me because Today I feel that so many Christians have lost the true value and the understanding of the Word of God and how precious it is to us. How we should never take it for granted knowing that there are cultures around the world, people around the world who are so excited to read the one page of the Scriptures that they have. And many Christians here in America and those who don't even claim Christianity may have one to several Bibles in their own home. There's power in the Word of God. Jesus, who spoke all things into creation, will now judge things by the same mouth, the same word. The Logos, as John calls him. The Word of God, as John labels him in John's Gospel. There's power here. We should cultivate an appetite for the Word of God. We should want to know the Word of God from start to finish. I don't know how many times I've personally read through the Bible. It's not really important, but I will say to you as I begin again reading through the Word of God and start in Genesis, I'm fascinated by the accounts all over again, even though I've read them so many times. Every time I see God's faithfulness over and over and over again to His people, I see his mercy and his grace displayed countless numbers of times, and yet men still rebel. As I read the word of God and I see all that God has done to bring man back into relationship with him, I'm wondering why doesn't everybody just repent and believe on Jesus Christ? But the Bible tells me that too. Their eyes are blinded. They are separated from God. They love darkness rather than light. The word of God is so powerful. It is something that we should never take for granted. It is interesting to me that you and I can read this text of of Scripture and be encouraged by it. 
maybe even get excited by it, to know that the imminent return of Jesus Christ will culminate in such a way. But yet one who is under the weight of wrath, one who is under the weight of judgment, can read this same chapter and should be terrified. It is amazing how our perspectives change once we are in Christ rather than being apart from Christ when it comes to the Word of God. I'd like to close with a summary from one of my favorite commentators, John Phillips. I'd like you to hear these words. He states very clearly, then suddenly it will be all over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be a, just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree, and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to a howling winds and heaving waves, and the storm clouds vanished, and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul, and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word, and the war is over. The blasphemy, the loud-mouthed beast, I'm sorry, the blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit is punctured and stilled. Another word and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. All by the one spoken word of our returning Lord.